Hey, um, Miles? What's up, Jay? It feels really weird to be recording this. I know. I mean, we got most of this episode in the can a couple weeks ago, and so much has changed since then. Actually, speaking of current events, can I ask you a weird question? Okay. When really big stuff happens in the real world, do you ever catch yourself worrying about how it's going to make covering specific X-Men stories really awkward? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's a little weird to be covering Age of Apocalypse right now. It's not exactly on the nose, but it's definitely closer to home than it was a week ago. Well, yeah, but also, eventually, we're going to get to Pandemic. What? You mean the legacy virus? We already got there. No, no, I mean the scientist. Weird name for a scientist. His given name was Richard Palance. That's a perfectly respectable name right there. But it's not a very supervillainous name, which this dude definitely was. I kind of figured from the code name. What was his deal? Okay, so remember when Rogue first joined the X-Men way back in Uncanny X-Men 171? Sure. Okay, so turns out, around then, Xavier called Palance in to try to find a way for her to control her powers. How did it go? Well, he couldn't control her powers. But... He did figure out a way to splice Rogue's DNA with a virus that made him immortal by granting him the ability to suck out and absorb other people's lives. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 289 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and these days, comics' greatest alternate timeline. That's right, welcome back to the Age of Apocalypse, where we've been for a couple episodes and we're going to be for a lot more episodes, and I continue to feel great about that. Speaking of of this being where we live now, I know I mentioned it before, but if you haven't, listeners, click over to our website and check out Peter Wynn's amazing, amazing new cover art. Uh, We decided that since we're going to be living in the Age of Apocalypse for a while, we should update our cover art accordingly. Um, We got longtime friend of the show, Peter Wynn, who's a fantastic artist, to do that. We are super stoked about it. We want you to see it too, so yeah. Yeah, you can probably see it in whatever podcatcher you're listening to us on right now, but there is a full, like, comics cover-sized version on the site, which has even more stuff. You can see our feet. We actually have feet. What? Weird, huh? And I thought we were talking about the 90s. Speaking of the 90s, we're going to be talking about a couple of Age of Apocalypse issues that came out in the later part of the 90s. The main Age of Apocalypse itself, of course, came out in about 1995, but it was so popular that Marvel kept trickling out little bits and pieces for quite a while. So the issues we'll be talking about today are two flashback issues called Tales from the Age of Apocalypse. Now, we should note again, as we said a couple episodes ago, that we're not going to be covering all of the later supplemental material. These guys are very much in the feel and the voice of the original AOA, though, and they're very much a part of it. They're not quite as good as the X-Men Chronicles issue, in my opinion, but they introduce a couple of really interesting things that I'm excited to talk about. Also, some timeline potential contradictions that I'm excited to talk about. Not Ben Grimm things. Uh, no, although actually in Age of Apocalypse, the thing is what Bruce Banner turns into anyway, because why not? I mean, look, names vary, and honestly, it kind of makes more sense for the Hulk. It's true, it's true. The Incredible Thing. Actually, that would be a great name. Hey, it's that Incredible Thing. I love that thing. But we digress immediately, uh, perpetually. What we should talk about now is what we know so far as we go into this portion of the timeline about the Age of Apocalypse. It's bad. It's basically bad. And it started being bad because in this alternate timeline of Earth-295, which was created when Professor Xavier was accidentally killed in the main universe by his time-traveling son back in the 70s, in this alternate universe, Magneto started his own team of X-Men to fight back against evil mutants, and evil mutants there were. Because Apocalypse took advantage of the lack of Xavier to take over most of the world, and he created this planet that was viciously ruled over by himself and the most 
most powerful and least ethical mutants, including his lieutenants, the frequently deposed and replaced four-ish horsemen. Their numbers vary significantly over the course of Apocalypse's reign, which is one of those details that I just find endlessly hilarious. But okay, so there are villains like Magneto working as heroes in the Age of Apocalypse, so is the inverse true also? Boy, is it ever. Um, And in fact, we're going to be looking at a couple of those pretty closely today, specifically Cyclops and Havoc. They've got the same code names in this universe, but very, very different backstories. In fact, in this particular universe, the two of them were raised together by Mr. Sinister. And they're working for Sinister in Apocalypse's horrible empire. Now, in the main Marvel timeline of Earth-616, the Summers Brothers' actual dad was abducted by aliens and became a rad space pirate with a rad space pirate mustache. In this timeline, well, we'll get to that. But one thing is the same in any Marvel universe, and that's that Summers' family reunions are never not awkward. So, Tales from the Age of Apocalypse, it's not exactly a series, it's basically just two one-shots. One came out in 1996, one came out in 1997. We're actually going to be covering them in reverse order, because we're pretty sure that's how they're supposed to work chronologically, but more importantly, they work better thematically that way. Wait, wait, so we've got, so far, Chronicles and Tales. Is there a Legends of the Age of Apocalypse? Do we have the full Dragonlance, you know, triumvirate? Oh man, now I'm wondering what the Age of Apocalypse equivalent of Weasel's Luck would be. I remember loving that book. I bet it totally doesn't hold up and is super cringy by today's standards. But uh, I'm just going to hold on to that memory. Okay. Anyway, let's start with the second of those issues that came out, the first chronologically, Tales from the Age of Apocalypse, Sinister Bloodlines. So this issue came out in December of 1997. Chronologically, it takes place between X-Men Chronicles number one and By the Light, so it's it's technically prequel 204. This issue is plotted by John Francis Moore, whose name you may remember from the superlative Wolverine killing, scripted by Brian K. Vaughn, whose name you might remember from a whole bunch of stuff, penciled by Steve Epting and Nick Napolitano, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Kevin Tinsley. I want to start with the cover because, Miles, I love this cover so much. Yeah, it's so dark and gritty and broody. It reminds me a whole lot of, I believe, a cover by the same artist that one we covered recently um, in X Factor where Mystique is being all badass next to the big pile of skulls. Miles, Mystique is always being badass. Well, right, but she's not always by a big pile of skulls. Sometimes she's just wearing tiny skulls. Aw. No, what this reminds me of, and I know this is going to sound super weird, it's something about the style that I cannot put my finger on. It feels like the the cover of a Star Trek novel. Okay, I I haven't really ever read any Star Trek novels, but I'll totally take your word for it. Oh man, you should. They're pretty wacky. Nice. I I read a lot of Star Wars novels. That that was my side of the star divide. Like, I had nothing against Star Trek. I just really liked laser swords. That's valid. The first page. You like the cover so much, I like the first page so much. We should talk about this. So, some pages just really, really, really set the tone of what they're going for. This one, specifically, is a statue of Apocalypse standing in the rubble of the fallen Statue of Liberty. This makes a few things obvious. It also raises, for me at least, one fairly pressing question. Was the Statue of Apocalypse also a gift from France? Maybe. I mean, okay, so the Human High Council rules Europe, and parts of them are a little buddy-buddy with Mikhail Rasputin, one of the horsemen, so I'm going to say yes. Okay. What I also really like is the caption work here. Brian K. Vaughn has always had a way with words, no freaking exception here. Five years ago, a new colossus oversees a new America. When the Darwinian overlord and Sabanor took control of North America, he commanded, Give me your poor, your huddled masses that I may destroy them for their weakness. Only the strong shall survive this age of apocalypse. But in what remains of New York City, even the strong must fight to endure. This is the new America. Welcome back. 
oh, straight up gives me chills, the art-writing combo there. It is wonderful. Now, specifically, the character who here is being welcomed back to America is Christopher Summers, Corsair, Cyclops and Havoc's dad. We're going to get into that a little later. Now, this story takes place in two rough timelines. The prologue, which we see here, um, takes place five years and change before the main Age of Apocalypse, and the main story is shortly before the main Age of Apocalypse comic. I really love the the style in the five years ago. I love that before Cyclops lost an eye to Logan, fighting him in the slave pits over Jean, he just had his normal X-Men visor and what is somehow the world's dorkiest ponytail. Apparently getting an eye cut out made him look all badass and brooding, and before then he just looked like a long-haired Boy Scout. I mean, again, he was raised by Sinister. Just grew out his hair, because what else are you going to do? You have to. I think it's legally required if you work for Sinister. You can be bald or you can have long hair. Well, I guess the Bedlam brothers are in between, but, well, one of them is. Anyway, point being, Scott has long hair in the Age of Apocalypse. That's just how it works. Maybe that's why he's Sinister's favorite. Because one of the things that this scene establishes very firmly, that we've seen established as well in Age of Apocalypse Alpha, is that Sinister has driven a very effective wedge between Scott and Alex, mostly by showing Scott blatant and ongoing favoritism. Oh man, and Alex has just turned into such a whiny, petulant jerk. And on the one hand... I mean, let's be real, Havoc totally sucks in the Age of Apocalypse. On the other hand, I really can't blame him. But he hasn't finished his dissertation in this timeline either. He totally hasn't, it's true. We also get to see Beast five years before the rough present of the Age of Apocalypse, and this is before he becomes gray and furry, before he started experimenting on himself just like he did in Earth-616. And something about seeing Hank McCoy, totally human-looking young Hank McCoy... But all grimacing evilly and doing horrible experiments is, like, extra not okay. Well, yeah, because he's so young. And you can see the, the okay, well, Cyclops and Havoc are raised by Sinister, but Hank is just, he's Hank, but, again, with, with without ethics. Yeah, it works really well. And I, I, I keep on thinking about the timeline here of the prologue, and how it fits and how it parallels the timeline in the 616. Because Corsair came back to Earth, or he he showed up for the first time in X-Men 104, and then he he showed up on Earth for the first time in X-Men 107. And I wonder if these are supposed to be happening at vaguely parallel times. I think so, because as we'll learn, Corsair's story about getting taken into space and coming back has a lot of similarities, and I want to talk about this later, because the way the timelines do or don't line up really determines whether or not this story makes any sense at all, based on where the Age of Apocalypse split off from the main Marvel Universe. One of the things I like about this story, incidentally, is that it has no reliable narrators. It is going to leave a lot of mysteries unsolved. And that's part of what makes it work really well here. So, anyway, we start with a Shi'ar craft crashing on Earth, and its sole occupant being retrieved and turned over to Sinister and Dark Beast for the next five years. And the Shi'ar, for anybody who jumped in with our Age of Apocalypse coverage, are a race of space bird jerks that rule most of the known universe. They were the ones who kidnapped Corsair in the main Marvel Universe, and this time, well, kind of also. You know, we should go back and talk a little bit about what happened to the Summers family in the main timeline so that we know exactly what we're contrasting with here. Right, totally. Yeah, they were all flying in a plane, and there was a mechanical failure, sort of. Well, no. So, Christopher Summers was an Air Force test pilot, and he restored old planes for fun. He, the, the Summers family is a long, long line of, of aviation fanatics. And the entire family went on a vacation in a restored de Havilland Mosquito. And something went wrong and it caught fire. Fire got into the parachutes. There was only one intact. The parents, Summers, shoved Scott and Alex into it or shoved Scott into it and shoved Alex at Scott, threw them out of the plane, which subsequently exploded. This is the basic level version of it. 
What actually happened, going up a layer, is that the plane was shot down by a Shi'ar ship. The Shi'ar in Earth-616, and this is going to be an important distinction later on in this story, are one of the major, major empires that controls our galaxy. And they are, as Miles mentioned, somewhat avian. And they kidnapped Christopher and Catherine Summers. Uh, Catherine died fairly early in their captivity. Christopher eventually escaped along with a handful of other um, prisoners who became the Starjammers, a crew of space pirates. They're rad as hell. We love them. I will link to the episodes where we talk about them and intro them in the visual companion to this one so you can get an idea of that. Meanwhile on Earth, Scott and Alex were very quickly separated. Mr. Sinister was involved in that. He basically took a look at Alex, went, nah, no potential, looked at Scott and was like, potential, but let's try to realize it by controlling his life, but like in really miserable ways. Um, Scott grew up mostly in an orphanage. Alex grew up mostly in a really screwed up adoptive family in Hawaii. They reconnected in their late teens and or early 20s. It's a little complicated during the Silver Age of X-Men. And they reconnected with Corsair a few years later in X-Men 107, although they didn't actually find out officially that it was him for another 50 or so issues. Of course, what really clued Scott in that Corsair was his dad is that when Scott was shaving one time when he was in a dinosaur country— he got to a point where he just had a mustache and said, hey, when I have a mustache, I look like that other guy with a mustache that I met. I mean, Corsair did also have a locket with pictures of Scott and Alex as kids and dog tags that said Christopher Summers, but, you know. I'm pretty sure the mustache was the important part. I guess. So that's the story that we're riffing on and contrasting with here. And I think this is a point, this is this is one of the points in Age of Apocalypse where knowing the original really does augment the alternate version. So anyway, Shi'ar craft crashes on Earth and its sole occupant um, is retrieved and turned over, turned over to Sinister and Beast for the next five years. This is Corsair. He is human. He has gotten Alex's dad and there's something interesting and alien enough going on with him that Sinister and Dark Beast spend the next five years experimenting on him. And I gotta say, when we see him at the end of that five years, when he, like, flexes so hard that he busts out of his bonds and runs away, he looks astonishingly buff for having been, like, tied to a chair for half a decade, and his mustache is surprisingly well-sculpted. I mean, Sinister has priorities, okay? You know, that is a really good point. Like, Sinister would first and foremost learn as much as he could from his prisoners, but he would take a minute before then to make sure that they looked fancy. Yeah. Yeah, but we also don't know exactly what they were doing, and we also know, in Christopher's case, or we'll find out, that there's something else pretty significantly affecting his physiology, which I think could probably explain his relatively good physical condition. Does it explain the mustache? Possibly? Anyway. So, there's a minor detail that I also want to harp on for a second here, and that's Christopher's prisoner number which is 9763. Now, there's usually significance to stuff like this. It's usually an allusion to something, and I spent ages trying to figure this one out, and I can't, and it's really bothering me. I, I looked it up too, and uh, yeah, nothing. Came up blank. My best guess so far is that issue 97 of the 1963 X-Men series is called My Brother, My Enemy, and has Cyclops and Havoc fighting on the cover. Okay, this is one of those things where I'm going to go ahead and say whether or not that was deliberate on John Francis Moore or Brian K. Vaughn or whatever editor worked on this book's part. Um, in my head, in my own personal canon, it was absolutely deliberate because they are brilliant, brilliant people. But you know who else is featured in that issue, Miles? I do. Is it a bondage Viking? It is. It is Shi'ar Bondage Viking Eric the Red. Shi'ar Bondage Viking and everyone's favorite alter ego, Eric the Red, which I'm not going to chase down the conspiracy hole that I could, but please, listeners, just know it's there. Anyway, the point is Corsair escapes. Corsair, Corsair escapes, and he escapes to the first of a who's who rogues gallery of awesome cameos because upon getting away from Dark Beast, he is rescued by none other than Daily Bugle editor-in-chief Robbie freaking Robertson. 
And I gotta say, in the Age of Apocalypse, Robbie Robertson must be like a World of Darkness LARPer, because the main things he supplies Christopher with are a trench coat and a couple of katanas. Is it a trench coat or is it like actually a pirate coat? Because it looks really piratey. To me, it looked like a red trench coat, which makes me think that in Earth 295, maybe Robbie Robertson was like dating Carmen Sandiego and she left her coat last time. Yeah, I'm I'm into this canon. I I feel good about this. Robbie Robertson is great. He is he is a generally rad dude. We're also going to get a look at Cyclops and Havoc's fellow prelates of Apocalypse, as Sinister sends them after an escaped human prisoner whose name and significance he will not clarify, but whom he insists is very, very important. And these are all pairs of siblings. Yeah, so this issue came out way after these characters' first appearances in the Factor X miniseries, which we'll get to soon, but if you haven't read the comics, if you're just following this story through the podcast, then A, impressive, that's hard mode, and B, let's introduce you. Alright, so first we've got North Star and Aurora. You'd know these two primarily from Alpha Flight. They are fraternal twins, they're creepy, they have matching hair. Next is Emplate and the Monets, a bald man and his young twin female siblings. So, we've talked about the weird continuity of Monet in Generation X at the time that Original Age of Apocalypse started actually being her two twin sisters occupying their older sister's body. This issue came out a few months after that specific thing was revealed in the main X-Men continuity. Emplate is so freaky here. Like, he keeps calling humans meat. He talks about the lovely odor of burning flesh. He has his own evil font. I gotta say, the only thing that would really help here would be to compliment his black Halloween-looking cape like some fake Dracula fangs. So, two things. First of all, he's got his own evil font in in the main universe, too. Second, the thing that creeps me out most about this M-plate is that he is far, far more human-looking than his 616 counterpart. Yeah, yeah, that kind of monstrous behavior coming from somebody who just looks like a dude. Very freaky. Especially given what we know about M-plate by this point. Finally... We have the Bedlam Brothers. They are Age of Apocalypse originals who would later appear in the 616. And they really don't care about their jobs, so instead they decide they're going to take Havoc and go to Heaven. Heaven, in this case, being the Weimar-esque nightclub run by Warren Kenneth Worthington III. Because Havoc and Cyclops have been told by Sinister to just go, I don't know, go hang out somewhere and be dramatic. He says that this mission isn't for them and won't clarify why. He, he says it's because they need to learn to delegate, but, you know, iffy. Now, the folks who are actually out hunting Corsair find him pretty quickly. And this is a very different Corsair than the one we saw in 616. The one in 616 was a space pirate, and he clashed pretty hard with the X-Men over, among other things, their unwillingness to kill. This Corsair doesn't see himself as a killer, and in fact, he's shocked when he shoots M-Plate. It's also very clear that he's fighting something, some kind of homicidal impulse. He's actually about to kill Aurora and North Star after blowing up something behind them and knocking them out of the sky, but tells himself, Can't give in. Again. Uh, spoiler, son, you've got brood problems. Back at heaven, Cyclops shows up to spoil everyone's fun because that's like his, his main job. And and says that they need to go find this guy as well. They need to figure out just why they haven't been sent on this mission. So he takes his brother, and they follow the trail to a graveyard. It's not just that they need to know why they haven't been sent on the mission. It's the fact that the search team has disappeared. They've dropped off because Emplate is dead, which means that the Monet twins are basically just completely fried out blanks. North Star and Aurora are unconscious and not responsive. So it's, 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 you know, time to, to go up a level. Now they find Corsair in, in a mausoleum and there is a super awkward family reunion during which everyone is kind of skeptical of everyone else, but gradually comes around. But I do appreciate that Corsair is like, Hey, I'm your dad. Here's what happened. Like in the 616, he was all cagey about his backstory because he felt guilty about having abandoned his kids. But with this, he's like, no, everything is screwed up. Let's just get our stories out in the open. Mostly. That mostly is going to come back and bite everyone. So, 
as we mentioned, Cyclops and Havoc have been raised by Sinister since childhood, and Sinister has been playing them against each other, favoring Cyclops. Cyclops, at the same time, kind of remembers their birth parents in, in this timeline, and Havoc really doesn't. So once he comes around to the idea that Christopher is alive, this is a really big deal for Alex. This is having a father figure he can actually connect to who actually seems to care about him. One of the details I really like is part of how Christopher interacts with Alex, because Alex and Scott are just fighting constantly, or rather, Alex is fighting Scott, and Scott is, like, shrugging it off. And Christopher talks about, yeah, you know, your brother Scott, he's he's a dude kind of like me, but you remind me of your mother Catherine, you remind me of her fire. And reframing what, to us, the reader, are pretty negative qualities— as being actually part of a connection that Alex has to somebody, that makes Alex feel like he belongs, and he's never felt like he belonged before. So all of a sudden, he is deeply invested in this dude with the rad mustache that just showed up out of nowhere. Little does he know it's actually just because they're both blonde. Yeah, well, there is that. Now, this is where we find out the actual history of what happened to the Summers family, and specifically to Christopher in Earth-295. And the canon here diverges pretty much from the start. Instead of taking a vacation, the Summers family was fleeing Apocalypse's reign. They were headed to Canada. And this is a detail that matters to me because I'm a weirdo, but in Earth-295 they had a Cessna, not a mosquito. Which is kind of disappointing, actually. I really love that it was an old, like, refit World War II fighter plane rather than just a civilian aircraft. But, um... Chris and Catherine were kidnapped by aliens calling themselves the Shi'ar, whom Chris refers to as the Shi'ar. But if you've read Marvel comics featuring the Shi'ar before, you'll notice that these are definitely not the Shi'ar. In fact, these specifically are the Brood. So my take on this was that these were the Shi'ar, or at least they had been the Shi'ar, but they were taken over by the Brood. And the Brood, of course, are a race of xenomorph-like aliens from the Alien franchise. They're the Marvel Universe's equivalent. And when they take somebody over, the features of the Brood, the sort of insect, monstery, lizardy features of the Brood, make themselves known in the bodies of their victims. Well, and they absorb the traits of the victims back into the Brood hive mind, so there are, there are sort of separate schools of brood depending on what they've absorbed similar again to xenomorphs yeah no that was that was my read as well but these were definitely more brood than shiar by this point and that is a horrifying concept like we were talking about earlier the shiar basically run the whole show of large portions of the universe and for an evil alien parasite race to have taken over an organization that powerful that is like legit chilling now, from there, Chris's history actually looks a lot like it does on 616. Catherine died. Christopher was subject to experiments or torture, thrown into prison. He and the folks who would become his fellow Starjammers escaped and stole a ship and Starjammed around for a while. But Chris decided he needed to head back to Earth. He needed to find out what had happened to his kids. They foreshadow this real hard throughout the issue. But the twist that it's building up to, and the twist that you're going to pick up on if you're at all familiar with the Brood, is that Christopher, that Corsair, is definitely incubating a Brood Queen. He keeps saying things like that he shouldn't have come back, and it becomes increasingly clear that he's missing time, and also that he's been killing a whole lot of people, including, by the way, Colleen Wing, which is unfortunate, who then come back as Brood. And this part's kind of weird as well, because what we usually see is, like we were just talking about, people gradually transforming more and more into the brood as they're taken over. And here it's more of like a traditional Romero zombie kind of deal, where people are killed by the brood, and then they rise from the dead as brood. Well, except for the queen, although that's a whole other thing. So I've got a couple theories about this, actually. One is that this is a universe where the Brood have taken a significantly different evolutionary turn. Okay, I mean, we know that Brood history is different, and we'll definitely talk more about that uh, after our issue coverage. Right, and we know that their capabilities as a species and how they work are influenced by the races they've absorbed. So there's that. Um, the second possibility is that there's something weird about Christopher specifically. We know that Sinister and Dark Beast have been experimenting on him. We know he's infected with and, and incubating a brood queen. 
it's possible that the way that he is implanting brood and infecting other people with brood is atypical or off or weird from the standard. So he's like a space pirate brood necromancer? That's so that's so much multiclassing. Like if it were old editions, you'd barely be able to gain levels at all. Man, that sounds so much cooler. Now, Sinister realizes pretty quickly that if Scott and Alex come into contact with Corsair, which they obviously have at this point, it's only going to be a matter of time till they find out that Sinister's been experimenting on him for the last five years, and that's really going to screw up his whole, you know, grooming them into supervillains thing. So, luckily for Sinister, there's a pretty obvious fix already built into this situation, and he, he times things so that he shows up to the rescue just as Chris is finally taken over by the Brood Queen. It's unclear, by the way, whether this is just the transformation finally happening that Sinister's been holding off for five years, or whether Sinister somehow actually triggers it. I would believe either. Yeah, and that ambiguity is 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 something that I really like. I, I mentioned that. Um, so either way, Corsair basically breaks through long enough to tell his kids they have to kill him. Scott ends up doing it, and Alex quietly decides that he is never, ever, ever going to forgive Scott and probably is going to kill him later. But I love some of the last exchanges that Corsair shares with specifically Cyclops, because once again, father figures only want to talk to Scott uh, about important stuff anyway. And one of the things he tells Scott is that Scott and Alex should be better than this that he knows they have these noble souls, that they could be amazing people doing things other than, you know, being enforcers for a genocidal megalomaniac. And his last words to Scott are kind of a kick to the chest because they are, if not necessarily since this detail varies from version to version, the last words, they're very close to the gist of whatever the last words are when their parents throw them off the plane, namely... Look after Alex. So yeah, nobody is happy except Sinister. Cyclops, however, has a lot on his mind that's going to lead to uh, some pretty important shifts in the way he does his job. He's still a war criminal, though. Like... He, he definitely leans harder into being lawful evil, but he's still just lawful evil. Well, you know, at least it's lawful instead of douchey. You're right, Dad. This isn't what you wanted us to become. Alex may never understand the gift you gave us, but I do. And maybe it's time one of us started to make some changes. And this is something that both this and the next issue of Tales of the Age of Apocalypse, or I should say previous issue, push really hard. These stories are trying as hard as they can to humanize Age of Apocalypse Scott Summers, to make him as sympathetic as possible, despite the horrible shit he's done. He runs the fucking slave pens. That's the thing. Like, he is not the character who this story should be trying to redeem, or if it were, they should have set him up differently. I will, that, that is a hill I will fight and die on. Another hill I will fight and die on is one I'm going to come back to that I, I talked about a lot very early on in the podcast, which is that it should be an actual official in our universe crime that the TV show Wolverine and the X-Men got canceled. Because if it had gotten to go into its next season, we would have gotten this Cyclops voiced by Nolan North. Holy crap, you're right. Now I'm even madder about that show being canceled. God damn it. Right? Well, before we confume too much, let's talk about the other Tales from the Age of Apocalypse issue, By the Light. This came out in December 96, and if we're looking at this right, it takes place between the one we just talked about and X-Men Chronicles number two, making it prequel number three of four. It's plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Ralph Macchio, no, not that Ralph Macchio, penciled by Joe Bennett, who's doing phenomenal work right now in, on Immortal Hulk, inked by Joe Pimentel, and colored by Gloria Vasquez with separations by Digital Chameleon. Whew, that's a lot of credits. It really is, and we're starting to see things like separations as a credit, because digital coloring age. Yay! This issue opens in medias res, as X-Men issues so often do, with the X-Men of the past, that is, of course, Magneto's X-Men, saving Robert Kelly, you know, Senator Kelly, from Diablo and the Absorbing Man in Apocalypse as Prisoner of War Camp in a Mayan temple? Is this just X-Men Mad Libs at this point? 
I think they've just got some dice. Maybe. Um, okay, so these villains. The Absorbing Man is a character who, I gotta say, I'm always interested in hearing what he has to say. I mean, no, he's Crusher Creel, he's a Thor villain, he can turn into whatever he touches. I do see what you did there, though, and I appreciate it. As for Diablo, uh, okay, so I mainly remember him from having his trading card from Marvel Universe Series 3. He has a really fun, like, green and black and purple outfit. But I looked him up, so his last name was originally just Diablo. But he's a noble from 9th century Spain, and that would make sense because the church, like, ran everything there, and they never would have okayed him being a noble. So later on, it was retconned that his last name was actually Diablo, which is a detail I love. That is very goofy. So is the fact that Magneto... In, you know, the modern Age of Apocalypse informs us that Diablo has mastered the forgotten art of alchemy. Sure, why not? Like, the dialogue here is very Silver Age corny, and I'm in favor of that. It worked really well in X-Men Chronicles number 1, which was set in the Age of Apocalypse's Silver Age. But it feels weird here, because this story takes place just maybe, I don't know, a couple of years before the present day of 1995. Right, so for instance, we've got Nightcrawler bantering to Kelly... Relax, mein Freund. You're in the triple-digited hands of the nefarious Nightcrawler. Teleporting along Earth's magnetic field is a specialty, Kelly says. Thank heaven you're here. You might not be so grateful when you find out I'm not registered to vote. Wait, is Nightcrawler a U.S. citizen? Uh, I don't know how citizenry really works in the Age of Apocalypse. I suspect the government is mostly based around, you know, robots and murder. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, in the Age of Apocalypse, we find out that this version of Senator Kelly actually preaches human-mutant cooperation so that they can both team up and take down Apocalypse. Yeah, in apocalyptic, terrible futures, Kelly tends to end up being a moderate. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I mean, he's encouraging cooperation against a larger foe. I feel like there's a relevant lesson to be had there. This is where I wonder if we've seen Age of Apocalypse Striker. Ooh, uh, we actually, we do. He's a major, major character in one of the sequels. He's called The Prophet, and he's fascinating, and I'm not sure how I feel about him. But not, he's not going to show up yet, so back to the, the X-Men and, and, uh, the weirdly sympathetic Senator Kelly. So after this daring rescue, the X-Men head back to their base, they jump bases a lot in the Age of Apocalypse, which honestly probably isn't much more than they jump bases in the 616. It's just that we see a lot of those bases in a short period of time. At this point, it's the ruins of the Guthrie farm. It's Cannonball and Husk and Icarus and Melody and their moms and their millions of siblings. Farm, but like mostly craters. Yeah, definitely no one lives there anymore. At least some of the Guthries and definitely Pa Guthrie were killed trying to defend the larger Guthrie family from Apocalypse, who went, oh, you got a bunch of mutant kids. They can come be recruited by me. Hooray! And Sinister got some of the kids, and Magneto got one of the kids, and the rest probably died. So the team at this point were introduced to them at Casa de Guthrie. We have Magneto, Rogue, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Sabretooth, Morph, and Gambit. And sort of a very new recruit as well. And that is Blink. At this point in the timeline, she had just been rescued by Sabretooth from the Horsemen of Apocalypse, Abyss. And when we in X-Men Alpha saw Blink, she was very confident. She was sort of this rad teleporting ninja lady. The version of her we see right here, fresh after being rescued from horrible, horrible conditions, is much more like the Clarice we saw in the Phalanx Covenant series. Blink's not here. Blink's in Sweater Town. She does have a big sadness sweater that she wears. It's true, and I don't blame her at all. It looks very cozy. Magneto, as usual, is down on himself. He spends a while after every mission brooding. He's, he's covering both the Xavier role and the Cyclops role for the team these days. And um, so now he's wondering, do their little raids and rescues really matter in the giant scheme of things? Rogue steps up to comfort him. It means plenty. The Human High Council says we've been a lightning rod to get humans to rise up against Apocalypse. Magneto is not convinced. And what good has that done? Has it slowed that monster one iota? All it has accomplished is to give false hope to the masses. Send them to their deaths with a rousing cheer of live free or die on their lips. Now all I can think of is that scene from Harold and Maude with the Just Like Nathan Hale! 
<laughs> but I really like this. Uh, this is one of the reasons I like this issue, even though overall it's not all that strong, because we get to see what the X-Men meant to the world before the big final conflict that most of the main Age of Apocalypse story is about. We get to see what Magneto's X-Men were like in contrast to Xavier's X-Men. Yeah, we get to see what the X-Men meant as symbols, because really by the time we hit the main story in Age of Apocalypse, they're soldiers, they're, they're the revolution, they're the underground, but they started out in this world as superheroes. Yeah, and it's actually really charming and just delightful to see that. One thing that is um, less charming, because I like continuity and this contradicts it, is that Magneto and Rogue are totally a couple here, like they're touching and talking about getting married and having a baby, and Gambit's still on the team, so this clearly happens before X-Men Chronicles number two, which makes me wonder, is this just a continuity fuck-up, or was Gambit just very, very oblivious and confused in X-Men Chronicles <laughs> 2? Like, Magneto and Rogue were totally a couple, and Gambit was like, I'm gonna get with Rogue, and or also Magneto, because none of us have ever discussed romance before. That would explain why Magneto is so nonplussed when Gambit tries to bring it up. Gambit, you know I've been dating Rogue for, like, three years at this point, right? Like, she's pregnant. I mean, are you just not paying attention? Uh, Gambit assumed Gambit had achieved that by the sheer power of, uh, his, uh, potence. Yeah, okay, that scans. Anyway, the X-Men wouldn't be the X-Men without a mission, and this mission comes from intel that they got from Destiny and Mystique which is that Apocalypse is recuperating from the last battle he had with the X-Men on a celestial spaceship parked on the blue area of the moon. That's the other reason I like this issue. I love space nonsense, and we don't get to see very much of it in Age of Apocalypse proper. I feel bad, though, because, I mean, ship does not come out of this well. No, in the 616, ship turns into Prosh and prances around and laughs a lot, and in this, uh, less so. Well, in the 616, ship gets rescued by X-Factor and gets to have friends and be happy in general. Yeah, not so much here. So the X-Men have to figure out how they're going to get to, you know, the moon. They do have a teleporter who could maybe take them that far. Blink's powers are very, very powerful and they're teleportation-based, but she's all traumatized. And between Sabretooth's gruff pep talks and Morph's cartoony goofiness, she agrees, okay, I'll take you there. Well, she agrees specifically to a combination of those things provided by Morph initially pretending to be Sabretooth. Because Sabretooth rescued her, but he's really, really bad at being a supportive parent figure. Like, he does not quite have the Wolverine chops yet. And Morph disguises himself as Sabretooth and goes in and tries to basically do that right. And, and Clarice catches him, but it still works. It totally works. So they're off to the moon, and that's where we see Ship. Now, Ship looks kind of like a cigarette box with a couple of cigarettes sticking out in the main Marvel universe. It also looks like that in X-Men Chronicles number one, where we also see it. Here, it's just sort of a big, fiddly torpedo whale, but eh, whatever. Artistic license. Well, it looks like a cigar case. Oh, okay. So it's still gonna give you lung cancer, but, like, differently. It'll give you, it's more likely to give you mouth and tongue cancer. Well, there you have it. That's the specialty of nicotine in the Age of Apocalypse, apparently. Tangent, wow. Anyway, point being, the blue area of the moon is currently presided over by Apocalypse's Horseman of Death. And as you'll know if you've read a bunch of Apocalypse stories, a lot of people tend to go through those roles. And here, the Horseman of Death is Maximus the Inhuman, one of the villains of the Inhumans, a race of superhumans descended from the Kree who had a very unpopular television show. Whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, he looks way too much like Despair. Second, what? How does an Inhuman get to be a horseman of Apocalypse? I guess the same way that Diablo and the Absorbing Man end up working for him, this is something that the later supplemental AOA stuff brings in more and more, which is sort of human collaborators working for Apocalypse, or inhuman as the case may be. I don't know. The important thing to remember is that Maximus is the brother of Black Bolt, the good guy leader of the Inhumans. And the important thing to remember about that is that Black Bolt's full name is Blackagar Boltagon. I will never let anyone forget that. You know, that Black Bolt's name is Blackagar Boltagon. Want to say it one more time? Blackagar Boltagon! Feeling okay now? 
I feel great. Does that mean that Maximus's last name is also Boltagon? Maximus Boltagon? That's a really good name, too. Kind of like how stuntman Dick Warlock had a son named Lance Warlock. Like, you can't go wrong. Yeah, no, they, they've got that locked down. Now, unlike Dick and Lance Warlock, who, as far as I know, are, are not actually supervillains on the moon, Maximus Boltagon is pretty damn awful. Yeah, he's using the Terrigen Mists, the misty stuff that makes the Inhumans inhuman, to create a whole bunch of monsters, and that's not cool. He does look pretty rad, though. Like, he actually reminds me a lot of how I always imagined the Abyssal Exalted in the role-playing game Exalted. Like, if you took a spindly vampire and put them in gigantic, gigantic black armor. Also, he's got this little shitty teenager mustache that I really appreciate. And he has killed and cloned the entire royal family. He's made his own sort of monstrous versions of them. Yeah, so, you know, all those characters that you probably don't remember because you tuned out after one episode of The Inhumans and you haven't read many Inhumans comics because you're still mad at Marvel trying to replace mutants with them? Uh, yeah, uh, them is the point. Projecting a little there? I would never. So yeah, there's a big fight. Um, it's We won't go into details. I think the main important part is that the evil monster version of Blackagar Boltagon, like, his power is that whenever he speaks or yells or whatever, it blows stuff up, and this one just unhinges his jaw horrifyingly, and it's actually drawn beautifully terrifyingly. That's pretty great. So the bad guys win, the X-Men are taken prisoner, they're going to be turned into monsters to fight Apocalypse because the Horseman of Death, Maximus Boltagon, wants to take over. And he's kind of in a position to do so given that Apocalypse is currently injured. But Blink, in her sadness sweater, escapes from this battle and meets up with... Hey, it's Cyclops, modern-day Cyclops with one eye missing and giant glam hair, and he doesn't want to see Apocalypse taken down by this douchebag vampire, so they're going to work together. See, this specifically is where I get lawful evil Cyclops, as or that is his alignment here, because he is doing the right thing now. He's joining up with Blink to do the right thing, and the right thing in his mind is to stop the dangerous, twisted, cruel, power-mad, would-be monarch from usurping the throne of the power-mad, twisted, merciless, actual monarch. Yeah, that. But to his credit, he does at least rescue the X-Men, so that's nice of him. He also tells Blink to believe in herself, which is pretty cute. It's kind of like that time he told Dracula to follow his heart. <sighs> Those were good times. See, that's, that's how you can tell that 616 Cyclops is, is, is the real Cyclops. I don't think that 295 Cyclops would tell Dracula to follow his heart. Mm, probably true. Well, the good guys win, and the X-Men rescue one of Maximus Boltagon's prisoners, who turns out to be Sunfire, who incinerates Maximus. And ship. And also ship. Oh, poor ship. I'm sorry you didn't get to dance around later. But this leaves the X-Men asking a lot of questions, and specifically about the loyalties of one of the people who they've thought of as one of their greatest enemies to this point. As Rogue asks, Eric, one thing still bothers me. Why did Summers help us? Was it not a loyalty to Apocalypse, or something more? To which Magneto responds, because he has terrible judgment, Only time will tell. But I sense an inner strength, a nobility in the man called Cyclops. Perhaps when the day of our final battle with Apocalypse arrives, we will be able to call him ally. Okay, but seriously, major fucking war criminal. So you can, you can be allies with him in that battle, but there definitely needs to be prosecution afterwards. These issues are trying so, so hard to turn AOA Cyclops into a good guy. I feel like as the Age of Apocalypse was coming out, the writers realized, oh, oh, we made this person into a terrible human being. Uh, let's see what kind of damage control we can do. Stop trying to make sympathetic AOA Cyclops happen. I realize that I am a good, you know, 25 years late with this demand. But look, this is the X-Men. Time travel should be feasible, first of all. Second, no, he runs slave pens. The fact that he is the most lawful member of the evil gang doesn't mean he's not a member of the evil gang. Legit. So there you have it, two one-shots that came out after the Age of Apocalypse, talking about stuff that happened before it, involving aliens and 
not aliens, but who are on the moon. Aliens and alien exploits. Now, every week that we cover the Age of Apocalypse, we're taking a minute to look at a specific aspect of Earth-295 or the greater event or the publishing history or something like that. And this week, we're going to be looking at the alternate history of the X-universe and the consistency and lack of consistency of the divergence between 295 and 616. So my big gripe of what we hear about in these issues is that history only should have diverged between Earth-616 and Earth-295 in the mid-70s or thereabouts when Xavier was killed by Legion. And that doesn't really work with what we know about the brood here, because by the time Christopher Summers gets into space, which seems to be roughly the same time he got into space in the main Marvel universe, the brood have already taken over the Shi'ar Empire. And I can understand that happening later because the X-Men weren't there to stop the brood, but at this point, the X-Men and the Brood never would have encountered each other at all. The X-Men and the Shi'ar never would have encountered each other at all. So how is this possible? Now, Miles, uh, you mentioned that you had a theory that you would like to present here. I do. I figured it out. Okay, so without Xavier's X-Men, we wouldn't have the New Mutants, right? Right. And without the New Mutants, we wouldn't have had Ilyana Rasputin accidentally sending them through time into the past where they met Scottish warrior and King Robert the Bruce, right? I guess. And without the New Mutants being there, Robert the Bruce would not have befriended Wolfsbane and given her a fancy belt. Still with me? I guess... So here's what happened. Without a teenaged werewolf from the future to give his belt to, Robert the Bruce wore that belt into battle. And Wolfsbane's way smaller than him, and so the belt fit her, but it wouldn't have fit him. And so while he was wearing it, his kilt rode way up, and he lost an important battle. And these weren't just random Scottish warriors he was fighting. No, these, in fact, were Scottish warriors infected with brood embryos. So in the main timeline, Robert the Bruce beat these warriors not knowing they were really brood, and thus the brood were not able to take over the Shi'ar Empire. But in this timeline, he lost the battle, they continued their march toward power, and they took over the universe. So, there's one real critical flaw in your theory, Miles. There's a flaw? Robert the Bruce generally fought the British, not the Scottish. Well, then they were Brits who were infected by brood embryos. The theory stands. So, I've got a somewhat simpler theory. My theory is that we know that the timeline divergence screwed up the Emkron crystal, and it screwed it up not just in the main 616, but in Earth-295. This is a fundamentally unstable universe and has been from the start. We also know that the Shi'ar Empire, in a lot of ways, is fueled by and has a very, very, very tight, almost symbiotic relationship with the Emkron crystal. So I assume that in this universe, they're just significantly, significantly more vulnerable. Okay, okay. So because the Emkron crystal was all messed up and because it is sort of space and time related, its flaws went backward in time to mess up the Shi'ar who depended on it. Right. It's been messed up fundamentally throughout this timeline. Well, I still like my Robert the Bruce theory, but I will concede that there may be some merit to yours as well. There's a lot that changes, though, and there's especially a lot in the Silver Age that changes because many of the non-mutant heroes are dead or just get written out of this timeline. Right, so like, when Galactus showed up to eat Earth back in the Silver Age in a truly amazing issue... There were no Fantastic Four, so what the hell happened there? That actually brings up another potential explanation. Because we don't know how time passes in the Age of Apocalypse relative to how time passes in the 616, which is inconsistent. So Franklin Richards tends to be part of theories about that. But again, we might have further divergence and we might have a different or compacted timeline in Earth-295 just because of the lack of Franklin Richards. You know, you know, that could be that as well. But what about something not related to the Fantastic Four? What about that time that Malekith the Accursed unleashed the Casket of Ancient Winters on Midgard, asterisk, caption, Earth, and then Surtur invaded New York City and Thor led a bunch of superheroes to fight him? I mean, 
we know from X Universe that Thor never really uh, came out of Donald Blake, and so Thor wouldn't have been around, and he wouldn't have had as much of a connection to Midgard asterisk caption Earth. So, like, instead of, I don't know, did we have Apocalypse fighting off Surtur? Instead of for Asgard, for Midgard, for myself, was it just for Apocalypse? Or did we have Surtur take a look at what Apocalypse had made of Earth and go, eh, maybe not? Yeah, yeah, that might be it as well. Like, would you want to take over this New York? I don't know. If I were Surtur, I might want to set it on fire. That's kind of his whole deal. Isn't it kind of already on fire? Yeah, yeah, maybe he thought it was redundant. But I think we're forgetting the most important part of timeline divergence between Earth-616 and Earth-295, because we find out in one of the sequels that Peter Parker died very early in this timeline, which means there's definitely no Spider-Man, so, Jay... You know the question I'm asking. Oh my god, wait, are you saying that Beyonder 295 can't poop? That's right. Without Spider-Man, when the Beyonder came to Earth in Secret Wars 2, he would have no one to teach him how to poop. This is truly the darkest timeline. So, this is the kind of problem you get when you reboot only part of a universe. And honestly, it only really becomes a problem when you draw attention to it, like the Brood story does. I think if there hadn't been the Brood story, and I'm glad there was because I really like it, but if there hadn't, I just never would have thought of all the non-X-Men stuff that would have been so different. I mean, I would have thought about it because of X-Universe, which is an Age of Apocalypse original miniseries that's literally about exactly that. But yeah, I mean, this is this is an issue. This is an issue that's going to come up again, I think, with House of M. And... Yeah, it's it's there's a point where you kind of have to look at the Age of Apocalypse as as having a fairly short depth of focus. So you've got the X-Men centered in the lens and the X-Men are clear and everything going out from that center gets blurrier and blurrier and blurrier and doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Like you can push enhance, but it's just going to get more and more pixelated as you zoom in. Well, the clear people who do stand up to scrutiny in our lives are our listeners, and they've got questions. Fran Sharp asks on Tumblr, My five-year-old kid has started asking for your podcast. Am I a bad mom? So, Fran Sharp, with the caveat that I don't know anything else about your parenting, so feel unqualified to answer the question in general, I don't think the fact that your five-year-old asks for our podcast in and of itself would make you a bad mom. Um... In general, and I'm biased here for a lot of reasons, I think that the most important thing that parents can do when it comes to their kids and media is discuss it with them. It's it's less about censorship and less about limiting consumption than understanding your kid's perspective, understanding their maturity level, understanding what they're ready for in terms of content, and being there to help them contextualize it. We're also, I think, genuinely generally pretty innocuous as long as you're okay with occasional swears. Like, we discuss media that has violence in it, but we tend to not trivialize that violence, but also not really play it up for, you know, in nightmarish ways. And as far as sex, I think the raciest thing we've ever really talked about is how you shouldn't masturbate with a cactus, and honestly, that's very important advice for anyone, regardless of age. More importantly, I feel like we should tell you Your five-year-old is not the only kid who has listened to our podcast at five, and some of those kids are now tweens and seem to have grown up pretty okay. So you've got precedent on your side. On a more serious note, I mean, so we both grew up with really, really liberal access to media. I think I, I somewhat more even than you. And what I found with stuff like this, and I'm, I'm going to, compare this to the nonfiction stuff that I was seeing and reading and things like watching Spalding Gray movies when I was five and seven, because that's my weird childhood, um, is that I didn't necessarily get all of it, but it gave me the start of a framework for how to contextualize and experience and discuss other media and other things I experienced in my life in really cool ways. Um, I'm not saying that our podcast will definitely do that, but I am saying that I think there are definite benefits to letting your kid be around, especially dialogic, you know, discussion-based media that you might assume at first goes over their head, even if it means you have to have some kind of awkward conversations. 
Yeah, I mean, I know, I'll admit, I know very little about children or parenting, but just speaking from my own experience, I experienced a media that I was probably a little too young for, and I value most of it. And the one time it didn't work out, I just took that copy of Dracula and hid it behind my bookshelf because the cover was scary. Yeah, ultimately, you have a pretty good sense of how we talk and what we talk about. You know your kid's maturity level. There are going to be kids who probably shouldn't listen to our podcast. There are... And, you know, you're probably better qualified to gauge that than we are. So next up, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr. These are two questions. First, does Nightcrawler need a barber for his whole body or just his face and beard? And follow up, which member of the X-Men would have the best barbershop banter? Okay, so I have learned from being engaged to an esthetician who does body waxing for a living a lot of things about body hair. And I know that body hair has something called terminal length. That's why, like, you know, your arm hair only gets kind of short, but your head hair gets really long. And so from what we've seen of Nightcrawler, unless he's been astonishingly diligent about maintaining that hair, I'm pretty sure the terminal length of the hair all over his body is actually very, very short, except where it tends to be longer on, like, non-furry people. And there's even some textual evidence for this, because in that old Alan Davis Excalibur story where there's that one psychic lady who is a reference to somebody who we didn't know about, she very politely asks if she can touch Nightcrawler's fur, and she says it feels like velvet, which would imply a short terminal length. I think it's also worth remembering that humans as mammals are in fact covered in hair unless we remove it. Like, Nightcrawler has much, much, much thicker body hair than most of us ever will, but we are ourselves examples of the phenomenon that, you know, Miles is discussing here. That said, one thing that he could do that humans can't mostly do on most of their bodies is he could get, like, lightning bolts and stars and stuff shaved into his body first. That'd look pretty cool. Oh, man. You think he does? I think maybe a couple times, but, like, he's a little bit vain, and so he only does it where people aren't going to be able to see it. Although, come to think of it, he spent a lot of time in Excalibur, and those characters got comically naked, like, half the time, so I don't know. Anyway, as far as the follow-up question, obviously the answer is the bouncing blue beast. How is, how is this even a question? How could you, you even wonder about this for a second? And we do know that the Beast has a very long terminal length for his fur, at least in most of his various forms that he's had since he went blue and furry. So, you know, he's going to have to spend a lot of time with those barbers. So it's a good thing he can entertain them with talk of, like, Broadway and quantum physics and Carlos Castaneda and stuff. For me, though, Gabby Kinney. Gabby Kinney is an utter delight, and I would have conversations with her forever, and she would be so much fun. So if I were a barber, which I am very much not, and I were cutting a mutant's hair, I would want to cut the hair of Honey Badger slash Scout slash Gabby Kinney. Well, the nice thing about her, too, is that I don't think she'd need to be there to get her hair cut. I feel like she'd just wander into the barber shop and start conversations. I mean, that works, too. Like, I wouldn't get paid as a barber, but I'd be having fun. Well, we're not barbers, but we are podcasters and a podcast that is fully listener-supported. And certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's take it to the angry Claremontian barber. I mean, narrator. Be careful what you wish for, Russen. For years, you've been propelled forward by the thought of Ali Kleber, never considering that the joyous meetings you'd imagined were products more of your own fevered imagination than true possibility. Now, you have no choice but to confront the reality of your failure and where it has left you. Naked. Lost. Alone. And covered in a thick crust of day-old mashed potatoes. Again. And from there, the mic goes to Mr. Sinister. That's right, children. Accompany your siblings and seek out our escaped prisoner except you my sons my summer's brothers your genetic destiny lies elsewhere in darkest brooding <laughs> brooding it's it's a private joke alex don't worry about it ah that's better now that my only audience is my best one my sinister self I can muse on the other mutant masterpieces, the prizes of my collection. In this psychic containment field majestically floats Charlie Rose. Well, 
the physical form of Charlie Rose. His consciousness has been replaced by a strange and mystical entity, most shirtless and angry, who calls himself Grave Moss. I must study you and your mystical hitchhiker more thoroughly, Charlie. No mind can be freaked to the point that science cannot fathom it. And my dark Dr. McCoy has devised a Tupperware, I believe he called it, to contain Rhett DuPont Vecchio and his own black fluid symbiote. Rhett, the delightfully spliced genetics of yourself and that venomous Clintar entity shall provide this laboratory with the power most sinister. And with that, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, and currently the Age of Apocalypse, is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who informs us that in Earth-295 he would definitely have a rad cape. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com, in both Earth and Shi'ar space. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're stepping a little deeper into the Age of Apocalypse, starting in on the miniseries proper. With Astonishing X-Men. Not the one by Joss Whedon, the, the first one. 